A Seal Upon My Heart Biography of Sisters Edited by George L. Kane The Power of the Hail Mary By Sister Mary Leonella As I swung on the gate that frosty November evening, waiting for Father to come home from his store, my mind was full of happy thoughts. When I threw back my head, I could see the sky and the tips of the fir trees. When the gate was wide open, I faced the big house, big and comfortable against the dark background of evergreens. When the gate clicked shut, I faced the mountains and the trees and the store. There was only one wagon left at the hitching post. Pretty soon father would lock up and come home. When I grew up, I would marry a nice man like father, and we would live right here on the Applegate River, with vineyards and orchards on the slope and the mountains all around. This is the nicest place in the world, I crooned, as I swung back and forth. This is the nicest place in the world, and I'll never live anywhere else. If I had known then what I know now, I would have answered, Guess again, little Emma. You're going to a far, far better home, and something will happen tonight to set you on your way. I slipped my hand into father's and skipped up the path beside him. It took three hops for each long step of his and I was so busy counting I didn't even look at the house. Suddenly father dropped my hand and said sharply, run around to the front door and I'll see what's wrong here. I knew he didn't want me to, but I looked towards the kitchen porch. There was a man laying on the steps. In a few minutes father came in. There's a poor fellow out there asking for food, he said. He so nearly starved that he fainted. Let me take him some dinner, I cried. Ah Sing, the Chinese cook, served me a bowl of steaming soup and heaped up plate of meat and vegetables. As I gave them to the man, he smiled at me, but his hands trembled. When he had taken the soup, he leaned back, coughing. I can't eat any more, he said. You are kind, mon petit. The good God will bless you. Now I must move on. Then I'll get you some shoes, I promised, and back into the house I ran. May I have some of your shoes for the poor stranger, I asked father. All he has on his feet is gunny sacks. To be sure, said father. But when I brought the shoes, the poor man had hardly strength to put them on. He was very tired and very sick. There would be no use in asking to keep him overnight in our house, for father was particular about strangers. "'Can't he sleep in my playhouse?' I begged. "'That's a good idea, John,' said Mother. "'You put up a bed there, and I'll get sheets and blanket.' Mother nursed our guest through a siege of pneumonia, and before he was fully well, he had become a permanent member of the household. Henry Le Chalant was a good man, refined and skilled worker. Each year he tended the vineyard from spring to fall, and in the winter he mended the cinnabar needed to provide mercury for father's gold mine. And he taught me the Hail Mary. That was a beautiful prayer with phrases that rolled musically on my tongue and the strange words that had a holy sound. Henry told me to say it every day, and I never, never forgot. Hail Mary, Holy Mary, pray for us now. The teachers who came and went never taught us about Holy Mary, Mother of God. They were able young teachers, for the most part, engaged 
to live at our house and tutor us. Miss Garor was the only one who talked about the Catholic religion, and she mentioned it in hushed tones to me when the others were not around. She talked of the horrors of the convent life as described in the awful disclosures of Maria Monk. There were clanking chains in her stories, and walled-in nuns. There were dungeons and tunnels, and schemes. I listened in guilty fascination. Mother would not want me to hear these wicked things, and she probably wouldn't believe them. She loved Catholics, like her dear friend Mrs. Orrith, in Jacksonville. But the stories must be true, for Miss Goror had seen them in a printed book with pictures of nuns on the cover. When Miss Goror's term ended, the stories ended too. Once in a while after that, when I was alone in the dark, I would see a face behind iron bars or hear shrieks from a dungeon. But gradually the horrors faded from my mind, as it was filled with better things. George Hoffman was teaching us now. He was a scholarly young German employed to keep books for father, and delighted at a chance to share his learning. So we studied algebra and geometry, botany, literature, ancient history, but not the meaning of the Hail Mary. When I was fourteen, I went to a boarding school. My sister Ellen had already finished her course at St. Mary's Academy in Jacksonville. I was to take her place. At first thought, I felt a faint uneasy stirring, the awful disclosures. Shaw, that was awesome. Ellen loved the nuns, and her parents said they were ladies and scholars. There would be very little culture in southern Oregon if it weren't for the sisters of the holy name, mother used to say. So we stitched and packed to get my outfit ready, and on a sunny day we drove to the buggy down the river road to Jacksonville. After tea with Mrs. Orrith and her schoolgirl daughter Joe, we went to the academy where the sisters gave us a friendly welcome. It was a good idea, they agreed that I had come early to get acquainted with the school before the other pupils arrived. I was not so sure. When mother left at dusk, misgivings overcame me. There was a high hedge around the convent yard, and a sister did slide the bolt on the hall door. She was a round-faced, smiling sister, but maybe that smile was a mask, and those black robes cloaked a deceitful heart. I had my supper alone in a high-ceilinged room designed for fifty girls, and at bedtime I lay in a shuttered dormitory of empty white cots. Try as I might, I could not evade the awful disclosures. These nuns had hoodwinked Ellen. That was a creaking of chains now. No, it was the wind in the shutters. But those really were whirling groans that died away when the hall clock struck the quarter hour only to reoccur in a few minutes. If this hideous night ever ended, I would go to Mrs. Orris and never come back. But I did come back. Mrs. Orris faced my problem squarely. Homesickness has set your nerves on edge, she said. That Maria was neither a nun nor a Catholic, and she was never within a hundred miles of the Hotel Dieu. She pretended to describe it. Let's not mention her in the same breath with our sisters, angels of mercy that they are. 
Anyone in Jacksonville will tell you how they saved this town in the smallpox epidemic by volunteering as nurses when everyone else was in the panic. The Sisters of the Holy Name aren't a nursing order either, but teachers. Good teachers they were. They assigned me to the second academic class, where I sat next to Joe Orrith for every period but one. When she had Christian doctrine, I had to go with the other non-Catholics to study in the boarding school room. I always went regretfully. If I didn't study Christian doctrine, how could I ever fathom the meaning of the Hail Mary? I knew a little about it by now. Ellen had told me it was part of a rosary, and I learned some of the mysteries from looking at pictures on the walls. When I asked Sister Sebastian for a rosary, though she thought I was teasing, she finally saw that I was in earnest, and not only gave me the beads, but showed me how to use it. On St. Patrick's Day of the next year, I had my first chance to attend catechism. The boarding school stove was out of order, so we were allowed to stay in the warm classroom. Sister Mary Flavia spent the period recounting the missionary activities of St. Patrick. As I listened, the thought occurred to me, if St. Patrick could make Catholics out of the whole Irish nation, why can't he make a Catholic out of me? It was the first time I had definitely realized my desire for baptism. All I needed to do, it seemed, was to pray to St. Patrick. But how can you pray to a saint when his picture is in the recreation room? It would look silly to kneel down in the midst of the fun, and you could never be alone in the room from morning till night. Saturday evening, as we reached the top of the dormitory stairs, I asked permission to go back down. No, said Sister Florence. But I left my Sunday shoes in the recreation room. Really, I did, sister. I'm not going to play any tricks, please, sister. Long afterward, sister told me that she had gone to the bend in the staircase to look down upon whatever mischief might be under way. All she saw me do was to stop to my knees before the picture of the benign old bishop. She didn't hear what I said, and as I came demurely into the dormitory, shoes in hand, I gave her no hint. With St. Patrick's help, it was an easy matter to get my parents' consent for enrolling in religion class. The next step was to begin instructions preparatory to my reception into the church. I was baptized in my senior year on the Feast of Our Lady of Lourdes. At my first communion mass next morning, Henry knelt near me at the altar rail. He had come all the way from the cinnabar mine and was so happy he could only stroke my hair and say in broken voice, You were kind, ma petite, so I taught you the Hail Mary. I couldn't say much either. How could I tell Henry what the Hail Mary had meant to me? And how could I whisper even to myself the wonderful aspiration that was forming itself in my heart? The girls at the school talked a good deal about religious vocation. Joe Orrith didn't want to be a sister. Helen McIntosh did. Ellen Corrin was actually going to enter the novitiate after graduation. No one suspected my secret, but I felt happy inside. Novitiate is the beginning of religious life. It's like book, boot camp for the army. 
Our house was in a joyous bustle that summer over the birth of my sister's son. For two years now, Ellen had been Mrs. George Hoffman. It was she who married a nice man like father and made her home on the Applegate. My future seemed more complicated. I know that some day I would be a nun, but how and when? It was one thing for my parents to admire the sisters and quite another thing to give them a daughter. The sisters themselves were not enthusiastic about taking me. I was a new convert, perhaps obsessed with a young girl's romantic dream, and my application met a response that was sympathetic but scarcely encouraging. At least it was not a flat refusal like father's, and I thought it worth while to enlist St. Patrick's help. If you could make Catholics out of me and the whole Irish nation, I told him, you can get me into a convent. He took me there by a roundabout way that led me first to Jacksonville on an assistant teacher at the academy. From the familiar surroundings, I wrote again to Mother Provincial, and this time she answered, Come. The opposition of your dear parents was to be expected, the letter went on. However, you have much to be grateful for in the consent of your mother and the neutrality of your father toward the step you are about to take. Time but above all the grace of God, which you are to implore for them early and late, will make unforeseen changes, and the day may come when, on bended knee, they will bless the life you have chosen. That prophecy never came true in father's case, but it was literally fulfilled in mother's. Every night she prayed for her children, each in turn, and when she came to my name she always said, Thank God one at least is safe. I was a religious long professed when she died. All during her last day she had tried to convey some message, and my brother and sister told me, There is something she wants you to do. Not until evening, when I happened to be alone with her, did I divine her thoughts. Mother, do you want me to baptize you? A smile spread over her face, and she nodded eagerly. I poured water on her forehead and said the saving words, Elizabeth, I baptize thee in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. But that was long after the summer's day when I went direct from the academy to the novitiate in Portland, without going home. That seemed the better way. I never saw my father again, but please God, he is waiting for me in heaven. In the novitiate, Ellen Corrin, a white-veiled novice, was the guardian angel appointed to help me get accustomed to the familiar ways. The gentle mistress of novices was my former boarding school prefect, and Helen McIntosh was a fellow postulant. There was no lack of Christian doctrine lessons here. The beginning class was in the method of prayer, and the very first assignment was to memorize a passage that went something like this. In the meditating on the Ave, make the phrase Hail Mary, and endeavor to relish its sweetness as long as it will excite your devotion. Draw comparisons that may help you to enter into its meaning. Do the same with each word of the group of words, uttering them gradually, one after the other. At the following exercise, begin by saying the same prayer as far as the word which has already engaged your attention and touch your heart. Last July, I completed 66 years of religious life. 
Today I am telling the story of how I became a nun. This happens to be the 25th of March, the feast of the first Hail Mary. Fulfillment by Sister M. Gretchen, SSJ Everyone wants to get the most out of life, naturally. How foolish not to. We have only one life. Every rational creature wants to be a full one. That is a universal premise. It would seem, therefore, that I should begin with an apology for my life. I certainly chose a strange way of getting most out of life. When I stop to think of it, I don't have to say to myself, You are an unusual way of life, and you haven't an excuse in the world for being there. If I do, then I have to answer, Am I? It doesn't seem unusual to me, and I never looked for an excuse. That's so. People don't have excuses for getting married except that they fall in love. And of course, there's no excuse for falling in love. Vocation is another word for love. There's no excuse for it, and there's no defense for it, except love. There is no one moment, no one circumstance. The seed of a vocation falls into a soul. How or when is not always certain, but it grows there and makes itself evident by many a little sign along the way. These signs are different for each person. I've asked my sisters how they know they had a vocation hoping some pattern might emerge. But I can only report that God has called us to religion in as many different ways as there are sisters. If anyone doubts that his finger is in our lives, that nothing is accidental, let him ask any group of nuns how each happened to come to the convent. For myself, when I was in sixth grade and the class was assigned a composition on my vocation, I wrote, I would like to be a sister, but I do not want to be a common ordinary sister. I probably had the Carmelite order in mind for myself. I remember this clearly because my very understanding sixth grade teacher asked me, with a twinkle in her eye, whether she were the common ordinary kind I had referred to. I admitted that she was. Years later I wrote to that sister. I have decided to become a common, ordinary sister, if they will have a common, ordinary girl. So much had happened between that first remark and the second, but it had all happened inside me. How to tell what cannot really be told at all? As someone has said, my secret is my own, but I will try to share it. During my high school days, I threw myself wholeheartedly into the business of being young. I loved doing everything there was to do in school and out of it. How precious was life, the mere living, as Browning puts it. I liked people and being with them, but I was always aware that beneath the fun we had beneath our long talks about everything under the sun, there were things I did not and could not share, things that mattered things that I couldn't put into words, even for myself. They weren't my dreams for the future. These dreams were ambitious, but all quite easy to name. Dreams of being a dress designer, a character actress, a newspaper reporter, the creator of a new comic strip, a writer, a senator. Those growing dreams you have in your teens, when everything is possible. 
About these things I could talk easily with my friends and laugh, because I took them only half seriously. Something else was growing in me, some other need for fulfillment far beyond these dreams. I knew it was only when I made visits to church and knelt before the tabernacle. A tabernacle is where Catholics believe that our Lord lives in the Blessed Sacrament. Then I was understood that I began to understand that nothing mattered except finding out what it was that God wanted of me. In other moments, too, I was aware of God, walking up a hill, looking up at the stars, facing into the wind. I used to love to swim away out with my back to the shore so that I could see only sky and sea. In all these moments, I desired to be made one with and to serve forever the Creator of heaven and earth and all things. But how this was to be done, I did not ask. So far, these feelings were not urgent. They were shaping up for some far future. I was busy being seventeen. Then one day, at the beginning of my senior year in high school, an inspiring teacher it was, my good fortune to have, at this crucial hour, said to me, Did you ever think of being a sister? That was all she said, but it was enough. The question had been put, and I had to answer it. I wasn't sure I wanted to give the answer just then, but the answer was already in my heart. In a nutshell, my grandmother would say, The matter stood thus. God had been good to me. I loved him. I wanted to give him a gift. Now someone had suggested the possibility of giving all my life. From that moment, anything short of everything would have been shabby. It only remained for me to say yes. A vocation is the pearl of great price, a costing not less than everything, as T.S. Eliot says. But that is exactly why boys and girls still want it, still stand ready to pay the price. The young are glorious in giving. I made my decision. The only one who tried to shake it was a family friend, a successful and persuasive gentleman. He told me I hadn't really had time to know what I was leaving. I couldn't answer his arguments with any knockdown, ones of my own. I could now. But then I was inarticulate with my youth and love, inarticulate but very sure in heart. So I took the giant step away from home and familiar ways, so the step that is harder for those who let you go than it is for you. Ardent and impetuous as you are at that time, almost the great let it be done is theirs to say on that day. It is to those dear ones after God that I owe first gratitude for my vocation. I turned my face to the September hill, the hill I love in Framingham. The very air up there is like new wine, and the visibility is 100% for the great pattern. The wide horizons, the true meaning of life. But the schedule was very simple, very normal. Nothing was asked of us except to obey the rule and to learn a new point of view, the external point of view. I had braced myself for rigors that never came, save the daily rigor of rising to the 5.30 clang, an indignity that did not grow easier with the years, as our mistress of novice warned us. Before I entered, I had been a little afraid that I would not be able to be myself, 
to say what I thought and felt and do any more. This went hard with me, but I had to enter anyway. After entering, I was relieved to find that I had raised my hand and gave my own answer to questions that were asked in our classes, to find that I could be natural even while trying to be supernatural, to learn that God always builds on what we bring to Him, which is what He gave us in the first place. And no one can deny that it was good to be there with seventy-five other girls, no two alike, but all of us keen for this new life, all of us green to it. Interest, trying, making mistakes, laughing, going on, experiencing a wonderful spirit decor, together in study, recreation, conferences, and prayer. We were only six months away from ankle socks on March 19th, the day we received the habit. A very long line of radiant brides approaching the altar rail that afternoon. I remember happiness and excitement. I remember, too, that they served raspberry sauce for supper. This seemed a stroke of mismanagement to me, who had all I could do was to bring the spoon up over the new expanse of white under my chin, without adding the threat of raspberry sauce. My habit is now as much a part of me as hands or arms, but my awkwardness in it then was quite typical of my newness to life. Much as I looked the part that day, I was yet a great way off from being a real sister. Three years later, I went to the altar to pronounce my vows, bearing a lighted candle as a symbol of life I wished to burn out in God's service. The day I received my profession cross, the cross of Christ, as visible pledge of God's acceptance. That was the day I became a sister of St. Joseph, the happiest day of my life. On that day, no sister feels that she is giving up anything. She is overwhelmed with a sense of her own beggary, of the great love God has shown her. For myself, there was deep within my soul a singing certainty that I was where I was meant to be, where God wanted me to be, and that was all that mattered. I was one with a will behind the harmony of the universe, and the will which alone could make sense out of human life. There are many things in religious life that are incommunicable, but one tangible joy I may mention and eagerly take this opportunity of doing so. It is the joy of incorporation with a group of splendid human beings, my sisters in religion. Perfect? No. It is a mark of immaturity to demand perfection of anyone except oneself. Someone has said that not even saints are safely saints until fifteen minutes after they're dead. You and I know that though you should clothe a girl in twenty religious habits, she would still be the same girl underneath, slightly smothered. A habit is what the clothes that they wear, that all her life had made of her. No sister are human beings. Their only glory and their only perfection is in their dedication. But perhaps somehow else in the world does there exist a group of people so varied and yet so single-minded, a group who have put every other thing in life aside and paid all they had for what they held most high.
Among them, women gifted as administrators, homemakers, teachers, artists, conversationalists, musicians, but all of them women who have set aside the good things of this world not because they love them less, but because they love something else more, God's will. Christ said, Whatever two or more are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That is exactly what I have felt many times, at recreation, in chapel, at meals, anywhere. There is a support, a joy here, a solidarity of purpose, and of charity that bears you along. It is part of the hundredfold refreshments, strengths, encouragements, and challenge. All these my sisters give to me, just by living their lives around me. Things they never say that I can see, these glad in the heart even in a human way. These I offer to God, when my own offerings fall so far short. When you have belonged to such a group, borne the burdens of the heat of the day, shared the same faith, the same vision, you are bound by more than ordinary ties, and you owe more than ordinary allegiance. One sentence in our office, office is a book of prayers that are the Psalms that King David wrote, and during the day they say a little of these prayers. One sentence in our office gains in significance through the year. I have taken root in an honorable people. But isn't this life monotonous? Someone may ask. The instantaneous response to this question from sisters everywhere is a smile. Religious life is everything else before it is monotonous. A convent is one of the busy places of the world. I remember, though, that I also wondered what sisters did with their time. But since the day I entered, I haven't had a chance to wonder, for I haven't had any spare moments. All of us found that every thought, every talent we'd ever had, everything we'd ever learned to do, even if it were only to play the piano with one finger, was called into service. We found ourselves playing the piano with one finger, while we used the other nine for something else. Have I found happiness? I put that question to another sister, without the slightest hesitation, as though she had been ready with her answer for years just waiting for someone to ask it. She said, Sister, every new day brings in new joys. That's the answer. For those who have followed a religious vocation, there's nothing like it. But isn't it hard? Someone might ask. The religious life is not easy, but happiness was never a matter of ease. Youth does not ask that life be easy, only that it be great. And greatness, what is that? There is only one way to personal greatness, only one. The giants of this earth are those who, by God's grace, are equal to the will of God. Today we have so many frustrated people because there are so few who can take the going wrong of their own plans and the desire the going right of God's plans. They are out of joint with themselves because they are out of joint with God. There are no great people than those who lift up their lives in a toast to the wonderful will of God. This is success, the only success that is immortal. And so I come to the simple fact, a fact you know, 
that there is no comparison between one way of life and another. In God's will, we find fulfillment. His will is the vocation of every one of us, and if He calls us to religious life, you will never be completely out of it. No social work, no lay apostolate will ever take the place for you of getting yourself in the total surrender that the religious life asks. But how does such a life of renunciation satisfy the human needs for love? How can anyone talk with a full life and not mention love? How can life be f full without love? It cannot, of course, and yet so many people do not know what love is. Most young people seek a full life in marriage. For many, that little phrase, until death, is too much. Ask too much. They bind themselves for as long as the feelings last. They bind themselves for better, but not for worse. And so for them, love never begins at all. In every walk of life, the name of love comes true in fidelity. I linger upon that word, that beautiful word, fidelity. The modern world has no use for it. That is why the modern world is frustrated, because fidelity is the secret of fulfillment. It is the last farthing you pay for something you want more than anything else. For those who really love until death is not enough. They desire love that is stronger than death. Every young girl desires that such love and such fidelity illumine her life. In my work as director of dramatics, I have written and produced several full-length plays. In all of these plays, there are, of course, love scenes. Some people have expressed surprise that a nun could write an authentic love scene, but these people do not know or have not stopped to think that a nun is a full-fledged human being. She knows or should know better than anyone else what love is and the beauty of it. She came to God, bringing in her two hands all the love she had ever known, all the love it was possible for her ever to know, and she brought that as a gift, good and precious, saying, Take and receive, O Lord, all my love, with all my life. God thought of love before the human heart thought of it. God is love. And when you begin to love God, then you begin to know what love is. Every human heart echoes with the great quo vadis. Where are you going? What is the point of it all? Where is it, that which you seek? For me it is in the religious life. I have found that which I sought, and now there remains fidelity to it. Every night I go down on my knees and thank God for my vocation. I know I am not and never will be worthy of it, but I love it and I ask only to serve him as a bungling and unprofitable servant, as a common, ordinary sister of St. Joseph, all the days of my life. I know that one day in his court is better than a thousand out of them. To consummate that vocation, to bring it until death, to me that is the great miracle, the perfect fulfillment. Only God can work miracles. This I ask of him. In my present position, I have seen the morning star rise in our other eyes. 
In the eyes of some of our finest girls, every September they turn their faces toward the hill in Framingham, faces beautiful with promise, eyes shining with dedication, and I bow my head, and I know the meaning of the word vocation.